I would like to warn you that this episode of Off the Watch List is spoiler-filled. So, if you've seen the movie, or you just don't care, welcome to the podcast. Howdy, and welcome, <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to Off the Watch List. <laughs> We're a keeping podcast, that in. A, a podcast about the movies that we have no excuse for missing. My name is Luke. My name's Sophia. And what did you watch this well, he week? He said Sophie? howdy because they're from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> well, what movie did you watch this week, Sophia? I watched Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> this movie was on my on my to watch list and now it's off the watch list Ah, um, for for a really long time and i will say it Mm -hmm. it was different than what i expected it to be i don't think i was prepared for the french new waviness of it Um, i think it's all it's worth noting that you are Almost as notoriously a fan of Bonnie and Clyde as oh, Bonnie oh, and Clyde fan, are themselves. Fan is a strong word. Okay. <laughs> I am I am extraordinarily knowledgeable <laughs> about Bonnie and Clyde, far more than the average person should be. You are oddly knowledgeable about a lot of very strangely specific things. We have Bonnie and Clyde. We have the Titanic. We have the depression. Romanovs. The Romanovs, Depression-era gangsters. The Donner Party. The Donner Party. The Donner Party was like my entry level historical tragedy. Like <laughs> that's, that's something no one has ever said before. Fourth grade me was super into the Donner Party. Like really into the Donner Party. <laughs> <laughs> the desperation in your eyes is scaring me. <laughs> uh, I'm past the point of needing to be validated. <laughs> but you're, um, you're a big fan of Bonnie and Clyde. The fan story. isn't really strong. I'm not like, wow, it's so great that they <laughs> robbed and killed people. But they, they are very fascinating. And in Depression era, criminals in general are a fascinating subject to me. So I do know quite a bit about Bonnie and Clyde. And as such, it was a little anguishing. Is that a word? Jarring? Anguishing. Painful. Painful. Agonizing. Agonizing. That's the <laughs> word I was looking for. <laughs> That's all I was like, it's, it's adjacent to this thing. That's about <laughs> to come out of my mouth. English. It was, it was a little bit agonizing <laughs> to sit through this movie, which has been described by other actual professional Bonnie and Clyde experts as about 5% accurate. So we'll go through quite a bit of that when we get there. Yeah, I have, I have a feeling, lots to say. <laughs> I, I have a feeling about 95% of your summary is going to be, and this didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get into that soon enough, I'm sure. Uh, You're like TV host. Tra- well, we'll get, in, we'll get into that soon enough. Is that what I sound like? <laughs> you sound very like <laughs> scripted. So- well... Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we'll get into that soon enough, I am well. sure. <laughs> but before we get to that, you have background. I do have some background because this movie has a lot of background, which is one of the reasons I chose it because there is so much to talk about behind the scenes of this movie, which makes it very interesting. Um, and I know you, from a historical perspective, um, 
may not be swayed by the points. <laughs> um, but it's, it is, if it's it does, wrong, it's wrong. <laughs> it does have quite a, a storied uh, background as movies go, which is which is um, special, I suppose. So probably the most interesting thing about this movie's history is it was kind of a game of hot potato for a while with this with this screenplay. The two writers, uh, Newman and Benton were their names. I believe they were producers and they decided just to write this movie script. And they initially sent it to a director named Arthur Penn, who uh, was unfortunately at the time unable to make it because he was involved in a movie called The Chase at the time. He was in the process of directing it. Um, and so they sent their script to Francois Truffaut, who was one of the leaders of the French New Wave at the time. And this was in the middle of the 60s. So this is like the heart of the French New Wave movement. What are the characteristics of French New Wave, Luke? You sound like I just handed you a note card to say that. <laughs> oh, is that what it says on this note card you just handed me? <laughs> <laughs> well, the French, the French New Wave itself has like a very interesting history because there's, there's like, I could talk for a long time and I won't. But there, there's a lot of interesting filmmaking in the French New Wave, particularly because it was a time of a lot of innovation in filmmaking techniques. French cinema, traditional post-World War II French cinema, it, it, there was a thing called the standard of quality. It was this idea that all filmmakers post-World War II held to of basically sticking to traditional filmmaking techniques in order to make a movie. And, of course, that makes a lot of... I suppose, quality movies. However, what do you mean by traditional filmmaking techniques? Don't break any rules. Don't take any risks. Don't put cameras in weird positions. Don't let actors improvise. Like huh, a, a okay. lot of these like, like standard of like have your director control the set completely, all these things. Mm -hmm. Shoot on sets, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Uh, so, so like as written, as planned. As written, as planned. And also the stories themselves had a lot of like simplicity to them. Good guys were good, bad guys were bad, things like that. And there were these filmmakers, or at the time they were film critics, at this magazine in France called Cahier de Cinema, is what it was called. And this composed of Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard and a lot of these very, in the future, important French filmmakers... And they were very, very critical of the standard of quality and of uh, all these old French filmmaking techniques. And so all these old French filmmakers were like, why don't you guys make movies then? And they were like, fine. And so they started making movies and they were very, very successful and they really transformed French cinema. So French New Wave was in response to the standard of quality old French filmmaking. Yeah. Uh, gotcha. It, okay. So a lot of this French new wave cinema was imbued with this kind of rebellious spirit of rebelling against the old and the tradition and the standard. And that's what makes it new. And that's what makes it new. <laughs> and you're going to get a lot of mixed opinions on the French new wave filmmaking style. Some of the most famous examples, um, or probably the most famous example is Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. It's really held as a standard in like film circles today. And you're going to get some people who are fans of it and some people who aren't because the filmmaking style really doesn't translate to modern day, for, especially for general audiences. When you watch it, it's like it's just kind of confusing for like your average moviegoer. The things that the, the techniques that Godard used 
are so experimental that they almost have no meaning in the modern day. Gotcha. Because for a second there, it just sounded like you were dunking on the general public. <laughs> well, I kind of <laughs> Which, to be fair, I also dunk on the general public a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, the French New Wave was, it was like a very artistic time. And, like, that's not necessarily the most commercially viable thing nowadays. Because people sure. don't, like, that's, it's confusing. And the story of Breathless, you got to watch it like six times to track it down. These kids these days. These kids these days. I mean, okay, I'm such boomer. a boomer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's 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 true. And so these these French New Wave movies were very, very influential. And they also kind of bled into America a little bit. Filmmakers like Truffaut had a lot of interaction with Hitchcock. There's actually a very famous book called uh, Hitchcock x Truffaut where it was like their conversations every time they would meet up transcribed. So that's kind of interesting. I've got it on my shelf if you ever want to read it. Have you read it? I have. Or is it just on your shelf? <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. No need to expose me on the air like that. <laughs> but Truffaut is my personal favorite of the French New Wave filmmakers. However, Truffaut was also unable to take the Bonnie and Clyde script that Arthur Penn had turned down. Uh, because he was working on an adaptation of Fahrenheit 451, which mm -hmm. I don't actually think ever got made. Interesting. But, but Truffaut suggested, since he couldn't do it, he suggested that they talk to Godard, which would have been an extremely different film. That would have been very, very bizarre. Also, I kind of like how they're going and talking to all these like native French filmmakers and saying, hey, make this movie about like American rebelliousness. Mm. And Bonnie and Clyde. And I, I guess it kind of makes sense because, I mean, these these filmmakers were very rebellious in their own right. But it is kind of interesting. Bonnie yeah. and Clyde are such a staple of American pop culture. Uh, it would have been kind of strange to have a French filmmaker direct it. Mm -hmm. But also, <laughs> Godard, in classic Godard spirit, basically said something along the lines of, like, he, he didn't want to work in the Hollywood system because it was too corporate. He made all these kind of outrageous demands for production. I'm actually, I actually took a course on 60s cinema and our professor, while I was taking the course, told us all these like wild demands that Godard had. Like he wanted to, I believe he wanted to like shoot the film in somewhere in like the New England area, which is kind of bizarre. Like Bonnie and Clyde, but if they were in Maine, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is like kind of funny. But yeah, he had he had all these rob a bunch of lobster boats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had all these wild Does claims. Does your roommate listen to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but uh, if you do, let me know. Um, <laughs> the one from Maine. <laughs> the one from Maine. Uh, but yeah, so, and then uh, the people involved with, like, this, the, the writers in the story took offense to this. Uh, like, these ideas of, like, turn, distorting their vision, and Godard took offense to them taking offense and backed out. Godard is a, is a story in his own right. Then they basically circled all the way back around. By the time they had gone through all these hands, and all these different directors had read the script, liked it, and then passed on it eventually, uh, Arthur Penn's schedule was clear again. And so they were like, hey, man, you want to do this one? <laughs> He's like, sure. And so Arthur Penn was the one who ended up being attached to direct, and it's also important Important to note that Warren Beatty, who starred in the film as Clyde. Is that how you say it? Beatty? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Warren Beatty. I think so. I'm pretty sure. I'm like 80% sure. So if okay. I'm wrong, send us an email. At off the watch list at gmail.com. Um, Warren, if you're listening. <laughs> Warren, let us know. Uh, I'm just going to call him Warren for the sake of not messing up. But uh, <laughs> Warren, Warren was also. He, I'm at peace with that. 
War and peace. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Looking at your face as you formulated that joke, it's like you froze. It came like a sentence and a half too late. <laughs> okay. All the gears were turning. <laughs> Warren Warren Beatty was also attached to produce, which is important to know because he was a huge, huge star at the time. He was like a really big name, oh, nice. and so him being attached to Bruce was kind of probably one of the reasons they got funding. A couple other kind of fast-ish facts to note about this about this movie. It stars alongside Warren, Warren Beatty. It stars Faye Dunaway. She was a up-and-coming young actress coming out of this sort of elite acting school at the time. And Warren Beatty saw her at the school, I believe, and really liked her performances and told Arthur Penn that he wanted her to play Bonnie. However, there were a lot of other actresses that Arthur Penn wanted slash considered for the role. And I've got a, a list of them right here. Jane Fonda and Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood would have been a very interesting one. Also, Sharon Tate. Natalie Wood, who was in West Side Story, coming next episode. That's true. Mm-hmm. West Side Story. So while this movie was getting made, it was it was a very kind of low-budget production. And it's sort of history and mingling with the French New Wave filmmakers and the script passing in and out of French New Wave hands and also the like relevance of the French New Wave movement at the time really impacted the style of the film. Uh, Staples of French New Wave is sort of on-the-ground filmmaking, like low-budget, low-crew, using, like, the natural world to your advantage. Mm. And this film has a lot of it. Uh, There's a whole lot of, like, the cars just driving through plain stretches of fields, and you can tell they just brought their car and the camera out there and started Mm -hmm. recording. And so that's a big part of French New Wave film that really bled into Bonnie and Clyde. And so... I did actually like that aspect of it. It felt... It feels expansive. Uh, it, it felt honest, I suppose, for mm-hmm. that situation, like especially towards the end of their careers. I mean, that's what their life was like. They they couldn't afford to stop anywhere because they were so well known by the time that, you know, they by the time they were a couple of years in. So they were just out there driving. Yeah. And it's also kind of intermingled with some interesting editing and some mm-hmm. like and some nonlinear stuff. Since it was kind of more abstract in this regard, the studio didn't have too much faith in it. It was uh, Jack Mm. Warner and Warner Brothers who were distributing it, and they were, like, very uncomfortable with the final cut. They didn't didn't believe it was going to work. And because of this, Warner Brothers basically gave Warren Beatty this deal where they gave him a base $200,000 salary for the movie, Mm -hmm. uh, which was, of course, a lot for the time, plus... 40% of the gross of the film because uh, instead of paying him more in his salary, they gave him a percentage of the film's gross, which turned out to be a wild mistake. Something Um, like it's like their second highest grossing film of all time. uh, At the time, he made $50 million. Uh, That was his box office gross, which nowadays, 50 million is not a ridiculous amount. But based off of the film's budget and the fact that, like, of course, adjusted with inflation. Mm-hmm. That's a very big hit for the time. Movies weren't as yeah. big of a domestic gross. And you have to remember this is this is pre-Jaws. Yeah. So before the blockbuster, as we talk about in our Jaws episode that you can listen to now. But when the movie came out, it was a huge financial success. And it kind of started or was the beginning of, uh, part of the beginning of, the brief but very important golden age of Hollywood. We kind of touched on it in our Jaws episode because Jaws and Star Wars interrupted it. Mm-hmm. But it was this period of time where you had a lot of these uh, auteur films, auteur also, by the way, a term coined by the French New Wave filmmakers, a lot of these like filmmakers that would make these very 
artistic movies that would have a lot of financial success. You had Bonnie and Clyde, you had The Godfather, um, you had a lot of Robert Redford stuff, like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And these movies would just like seem to hit home with American audiences, which is not something that had really happened before in cinematic history. Yeah, this period of like 10-ish years in the 60s and 70s before Jaws bred a lot of very interesting and unique movies that also the studios wanted to back. So that's pretty cool. cool. Another aspect of Bonnie and Clyde, which is pretty interesting and important. So that's a little bit of history on the background of the movie itself. I feel like it might be worthwhile saying directly up front that it's not incredibly faithful, especially when it comes, I'm like, you're going to jump into it, but especially when it comes to the side characters like Blanche, mm. it really, it doesn't pay too much respect to the actual history there, yeah. which looking at it from a film perspective is not that big of a deal because it was telling a story. But if you are a, a history buff, that might annoy you a bit. <laughs> and and also, I think the thing is, for me, there's a lot of interesting things about their actual story that just didn't make it in. Mm-hmm. Like, I was, I was honestly shocked at the complete lack of Ted Hinton in this movie. And to me... You're going to have to explain to our audience who Ted Hinton okay. is, Sophia. So, well, Ted Hinton, that's... If I was telling a story, that's a really interesting angle because he was one of the... Um, I think he was the youngest member of the posse that... Uh, spoiler alert. Sh- uh, staked out and then ambushed and shot Bonnie and Clyde. Bonnie and Clyde die at the end of this movie. They die at the end. Uh, yeah, and so there was there was this group of I don't know if they were all Texas Rangers. There was this group of law enforcement officers and they all staged an ambush and shot up the car as they drove by. And Ted Hinton was the youngest member of that group and he was chosen because he knew both Bonnie and Clyde personally and could recognize them on site. And he was, like, in love with Bonnie. Like, he had known her for a long time. He had a huge crush on her, like, knew her personally. And he he's written this book about having to listen to her scream as he killed her. And he, like, worked with Clyde. And, like, it's, it's, that, that's a really interesting angle to me is, like, his, his love for Bonnie, his anger at Clyde for kind of taking her down this alternate path and then having to be the one to bring about their deaths because he knows them so well. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really interesting. And he is nowhere in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that would make a great story in its, in its own right. Yeah, in, in the movie, they kind of play, especially Bonnie, but both Bonnie and Clyde, as a little bit more innocent to the, like, goings-on of the world, I suppose. Well, kind of, like, kind of naive, honestly. And, yeah. and there, a lot of Bonnie's poetry is out in the world. And from that, just reading things that she wrote while they were on the road together, it's very clear she was she was not only very artistic and very clever, but she also was extremely realistic and down to earth about what they had in store for them. Like reading some of her writings, it's explicitly clear that she she was fully aware of what was coming for them eventually. Like they knew that they were going going to die in the near future and they knew how they were probably going to die. That was that uh, sooner or later they were going to get killed. All right. So 
that's a little bit of preliminary <laughs> ramblings. But uh, to get into the actual plot here. So the movie opens with Clyde trying to steal Bonnie's mother's car. <laughs> <laughs> On brand, I suppose. Bonnie looks out her window and sees this guy just like prowling around her mother's car. And she's like, hey, don't steal that car. <laughs> and then she just goes downstairs and they go hang out in town together. Mm-hmm. Which so So she just... She sees this guy trying to steal her mom's car and is like, this is the person I'd like to spend my afternoon with. She fell for Warren's unnatural charm. And then while they're walking around town, they just kind of get to talking and he's he makes no secret about his criminal activity. <laughs> and he tells her that, you know, he like once cut off two toes to to get off of you know, hard labor detail when he was in prison, which is true. He did do that. He did do that. Interestingly enough. He got paroled like two days later. Yeah. Which that's crazy. sucks. That's crazy. Yeah. Could you imagine? That's awful. It is interesting. This movie doesn't, you as a as a Bonnie and Clyde historian yourself, um, it's interesting this movie picks up post Clyde's imprisonment. Yeah, because at the... Oh my gosh, I'm going to be so Go annoying to Go everyone. But at the... Um, at the time of the incident he was referring to when he when he cut off his toes, he was already with Bonnie at that time in real life. And didn't Bonnie break him out of prison? She she did that once. This was not that time. He, gotcha. he got paroled this time legitimately. Um, they also went back to the same prison and broke out a bunch of other people at one point. Uh, so Clyde's real whole thing in like in real life was he had just this awful, awful, awful experience in Easton prison in uh, Texas when he was there. And that's where he committed his first murder. Mm -hmm. Never confirmed, but like he definitely did it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, Yeah, he was he was being abused by by this one other prisoner in particular. He was just and, and he never he never fully recovered from from the trauma of that of that incident. And so his whole motivation thereafter was trying to get revenge on the correctional department and interesting and so he was he was motivated by what motivated a lot of these outlaws of the 30s which was just you know an, a, a desperation and you know a realization that he could probably do better for himself illegally than he could by trying to get a job uh, but also you know kind of a personal vendetta against law enforcement of any kind mm-hmm. and that's actually why they spent so much of their time on the run towards the end and why they they both took it for granted that they were they were going to get killed sooner or later because Clyde absolutely refused to go back to prison. Interestingly, even though even though, of course, the movie picks up after Clyde has gotten out of prison and Mm -hmm. it does mess with like the timeline a little bit of Mm -hmm. Bonnie and Clyde's relationship, it does like very bravely for the 60s does handle Clyde's tr- like prison related trauma pretty t- tastefully um mm-hmm. which has like well I'm sure we'll get to more but mm-hmm. that does come up especially in its ramifications with his relationship with Bonnie mm-hmm. and so it's just worth noting that that's something rather um I guess progressive of this movie in yeah. the mid 60s yeah I was impressed with that but I was I was also surprised because you don't really get 
that revenge motivation in this yeah. movie. Yeah. And that was something I, I felt was was lacking a little bit because I think it would have made for a stronger just a stronger purpose. I think watching it, I kind of got the sense that, you know, they were just like, we rob banks. <laughs> like, and that's just what we do. And it, it seemed like they just kind of fell into that lifestyle a little bit as it's as mm-hmm. it's played out here. But I I personally would have liked to to see just a little more depth into the the backstory because I think like in real life Clyde had a very strong why. Mm-hmm. And and it yeah. Yeah, it does kind of feel like knowing those motivations when you watch the movie, it works. It feels like someone knew it as it they did, were writing, but didn't they didn't. Yeah, exactly. Which is kind of kind of like interesting in its own right. Like you can watch the movie with that knowledge and get an almost entirely different experience from watching it without. But you won't get that knowledge from watching the movie. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You you won't you won't be fed the information that Clyde was abused in prison mm-hmm. and that he hates police officers. But the fact that he was abused in prison and hates police officers does play a role in the movie, mm-hmm. even though it's never said. Yeah. Uh, which actually might be more true to life, potentially, in terms of, like, I don't know if he ever talked about those experiences with Bonnie. Yeah. So they're they're walking around downtown. He's kind of telling her just some of these things, and and she's like, "Wow, a criminal." <laughs> and, and I think he shows her he shows her just like this pistol that he's carrying around. She kind of makes fun of him or something. Is like, "Ah, oh, but you like don't have the guts to use it." And he's mm-hmm. like, "Watch this," and goes and robs the store. So he he robs this store, and they run off together, like two kids that just like egged a house like is the, is the vibe and they're like quick run away uh, and uh, yeah is, is, is this I forget I don't know if you'll remember but when he robs the store does it show him being nervous with the gun now or is that later at the bank robbery oh, I can't remember I think it's later I think it might be later yeah, yeah well, we'll get there yeah but so they run away and then Bonnie very quickly is like this is the lifestyle I want uh, and, and so she just decides to to fall in and, and join him on this criminal crusade that also I think is is actually pretty true to life um it does touch on Bonnie being bored in in her current occupation as a waitress which was the actual job she had. That's how she met Ted Hinton because he would come into her restaurant and they have just this little scene in a restaurant where they're, they're getting to know each other a little more and she's, and, and and they're talking about, you know, her, her dead end job. And in, in real life, like, as I was saying, Bonnie was noted to have lots of aspirations. She wanted to be an actress. She wrote poetry. She kind of had all these big dreams for herself and thought that she was destined for more than this small little town in West Dallas. You dipped into a bit of a southern accent there when you said Dallas. West Dallas. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think in, in some ways she kind of saw her life with Clyde as the only chance at notoriety she was going to get. Yeah. So I, I did like that they brought that into it a little bit. But then they're they're each talking about their backstories. And I found it really interesting. At one point, Clyde is is kind of going over her backstory. It's a like, all right, now let me see if I got this right thing. And then he repeats everything that, <laughs> that yeah. she said. And he says he says something that just struck me really funny where he mentions that 
that she had like a high school sweetheart and she thought she was going to marry him, but she didn't. And that's such a throwaway line. Mm -hmm. And it is really interesting to me because that is not true. And I want to (laughs) know why I am very curious why they felt it was important to change this one very small detail. Well, what is true about it? (laughs) Bonnie did marry her high school sweetheart. His name was Roy Thornton. She was wearing her wedding ring when she died. And and that's like a, a very minor detail. And it's a very minor line, but why why would they decide to <laughs> to change that? I, I was and so from here, I believe they just embark on, you know, sort of a, a montage of sorts of, of small crimes. We get the first the first hint of like a motivation or or sort of like the deeper undercurrent of what caused this this wave of outlaws and in robbers during the great depression which is when um, bonnie and clyde are crashing at just like this abandoned farmhouse out in the country right Mm -hmm. and i think they're like out in the yard doing some target practice and i think clyde's like teaching her how to shoot a gun and the farmer and his family who used to own the property come up just to like visit it take a look at it and at first they're they're each kind of confrontational with each other because Clyde's like, who's this guy coming into this house? And the farmer's like, who's this guy living in my old house? (laughs) But then uh, the farmer tells him that uh, the bank foreclosed on the property, which is why he and his whole family had to move out. I believe it's insinuated that they don't have a home anymore. And Clyde and Bonnie kind of have this talk with him where they're they're basically just commiserating about the government and the banks and Clyde turns and and there's like a sign outside the yard that says, you know, property of whatever bank. (laughs) And and he, he takes his pistol and shoots through the sign a bunch of times. And the farmer's like, thanks. No, this is probably the most blatant the movie gets with its themes. Mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of it's kind of like nice while you're watching the movie. It's I like, did like that moment. But the whole movie itself is very subtle with its intention. And it's like mm-hmm. like like what does it mean? Like yeah, it's kind of it's been very subtle with those things. But this is one of the moments where you can really tell that like they're driving home mm-hmm. the struggle of these people in the depression. Yeah, and you feel it. It, it does it works well. Yeah, and then a short time after that, I believe they're at a gas station, and they meet this. This gas station attendant who's probably what, like, probably between like 16 and 20. Yeah. 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 Um, his name's C.W. Moss. He did not exist in real life. He's a mashup of a couple other people who didn't exist in real life. But so this young gas station attendant and they they're kind of just teasing him and joking around with him. And and at one point, Bonnie's like, guess what? We rob banks. <laughs> and, and he's kind of like, whoa. And she's like, do you think that you could rob banks, C.W. Moss? They always at C.W. <laughs> and this this kid is kind of like scared and intimidated and impressed <laughs> by them all at the same time. And you also get just a hint of he, too, is a little bit fed up with his dead end minimum wage job in the middle of nowhere and so he just decides to join him too and so he hops in the car joins the gang all right so then they they go out and they commit this other bank robbery and you know as as far as beats in the story go it's pretty generic except for the fact that cw is on parking the car or or getaway car duty Mm -hmm. 
And so he's supposed to wait outside with the with the car and then drive away when they run out. <laughs> but decides to parallel park. He decides. <laughs> <laughs> this like sixteen year old kid is like, I just got my driver's license. <laughs> I know what to do. And yeah, he goes and parallel parks this car, <laughs> like on the side of the road. And so Bonnie and Clyde, they they. They do their thing. They rob the bank. They run out and they're like, where's the car? And, <laughs> and, and then they run down the street and they find where CW parked. And they like hop in the car and CW has to do like a 32 point turn to get out of the spot. <laughs> he and, Austin Powers is it. And, and Clyde's like, why'd you park the car? <laughs> like, what are you thinking? <laughs> There's a scene in Steve Martin's The Pink Panther movie oh, from 2000, no. I think eight it was, where there's this like, like, 15, 20 foot gap in between cars and he tries to parallel park and just keeps rear-ending the two cars. Well, that's also a joke in Phineas and Ferb. Is it really? Yeah. <laughs> and like, like that's what happens in this movie is yeah. he just can't get out of the parking spot. Yeah. And so it takes them like forever to, to actually get away in this car. And by the time they're they're pulling out of the parking spot, the bank tellers are, are all running out trying to stop them in one of them ends up like jumping and, and hanging onto the window as the car is driving away and Clyde shoots him at point blank range and that's that's a, a very significant beat because now he's got murder charges on his head too. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Uh, at some point soon after this they are also joined by Clyde's brother Buck Barrow Buck Barrow and Buck's wife Blanche. Buck and Blanche Buck is played by Gene Hackman. Uh, and this was one of Gene Hackman's earlier roles and one of the ones that kind of sent him off into stardom. But yeah, since since this movie, he he's very old now and I believe he's retired. He's like since become one of the probably the greatest living actors around today. Mm. He's in a lot of really awesome stuff. He was in The French Connection, um, which was amazing. Which, of course, amazing. One of the classic 70s movies. Um, so yeah, he's... He's a fantastic actor. It was kind of fun. I was surprised to see him when I first watched the movie because <laughs> he's not really highlighted anywhere. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, Buck and Blanche. And they have a really interesting dynamic, which to an extent the movie got down pretty well. So Buck and Clyde were, I mean, ob obviously they grew up together, but they, growing up in a very, very poor town in yeah, in, in the Depression era, they kind of got into just very minor criminal activity at a, at a very young age. I think at one point they got arrested for stealing some chickens. Um, nice. and, <laughs> and so they, they kind of grew up getting into trouble together and getting each other out of trouble. And, 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 and Buck never really lost that. And they never really lost that relationship with each other where they were just kind of always scheming and plotting and, and always up to something. The trouble is that Buck married a preacher's daughter, <laughs> uh, Blanche. She, she was kind of on his case to to settle down and to get his act together and she was a, a good influence on him yeah probably a very good influence for him she, she was a very good influence on him except you know i think as soon as buck got like under clyde's sphere of influence clyde. um all that work just went out the window and he didn't want to hear it anymore so so the there's an interesting dynamic between buck and clyde in that respect and then also between Buck and Blanche. Mm -hmm. And and this movie is aware of that. 
and it knows that that dynamic, but it plays up Blanche's stuck upness. She is quite a caricature in this movie. And the thing is, Blanche Barrow was alive when this movie came out. She <laughs> saw this movie and she hated it. It's tough. Yeah. She did not like this movie. She hated the way she was portrayed. It's very unflattering. It's extremely unflattering. She definitely gets the short end of the stick in this movie compared to the rest of the characters. They they needed her to be an archetype. And so they they sacrificed a lot of you know who she actually was. I have a feeling while they, the writers were writing the screenplay, what probably happened is they uh, they got to the the end of the movie where they needed someone to reveal information about mm-hmm. Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, and like, who do we have do it? Oh, we need. Well, we'll just have Blanche do it. So we mm-hmm. need to set her up as kind of the annoying one earlier yeah. on, so the audience doesn't get mad. Yeah. Yeah, and it's established very quickly that Blanche and Bonnie do not get along, which is which is true to life. Of course, Bonnie and Clyde were very public in real life while they were alive, and they were kind of like a celebrity outlaw group. Which you 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 could talk about this how mm-hmm. other outlaws kind of hated them. All, every every other bank robber during the depression like hated them because <laughs> they all thought they were kind of wimps, but here they were getting all the publicity just because yeah. they were dating. They weren't even like that prolific bank robbers compared to others right in terms of like what they accomplished no but they were (laughs) and so everyone's like these two amateurs out here getting all the press yeah Um, which i guess probably in the long run is a good thing for those other outlaws i was thinking perhaps we didn't really know too too much about bonnie and clyde's personal life until later and so a bit of research it turns out ted hinton's book actually came out in 1979, which is after this movie. So I unfortunately stand partially corrected. <laughs> but yeah, since he, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the success of this movie kind of motivated him to write the book sure. because, I mean, that's a big financial opportunity saying that's you're really the guy yeah. that was in love with Bonnie. But yeah, so. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Maybe the writers didn't even know he existed at the time. So That's true. But yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point that I hadn't considered. So I'll give him a pass. Sounds like someone might have to make a new Bonnie and Clyde movie that has Ted Hinton in it. Yes. I'll play Bonnie and Clyde and Ted Hinton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> but anyway, we were, we were talking about Bonnie and Blanche. Yeah, they didn't like each other in real life. They just didn't get along. There was a lot of tension between them. And then, so the, this whole movie really is, is it's just a series of you know, they hide out somewhere, then they rob somewhere, and then they hide out somewhere, then they rob somewhere. And and, and they get busted along the way. Yeah, it's, it's just a lot of that. So the these four, or five now, so the gang that we see in the movie is Bonnie, Clyde, Buck, Blanche, and CW. Mm-hmm. And in, in real life, they had, you know, quite a few other people that kind of rotated in and out and would travel around with them for a while and then leave. But that's that's understandably difficult mm-hmm. to, to capture. Uh, they go and they pull a bank robbery and like of course Blanche is like sitting in the car and she's like, I disagree with this. Like I I don't I don't condone this. <laughs> <laughs> before, um, before Buck and Blanche enter the picture, Bonnie and Clyde B- Clyde tries to impress Bonnie by robbing a bank. 
and he's like he's super nervous like his hands you're right his hands are like shaking as he's like telling the clerk to do it and it's, it's kind of comical he walks in and has the guy he's like give me the money and the clerk just kind of looks up and goes what money yeah what money we don't have any you're money. right that does happen earlier and yeah yeah bonnie is just like cackling in the car outside when he comes running out yeah yeah and they drive away yeah yeah you're right okay so they earlier in this movie they robbed a bank with no money that actually did happen it's very funny um (laughs) uh, but this time they are robbing a bank and there is actual money in the bank and so they're they're just like kind of shoveling dollar bills into these like big burlap sacks with Mm-hmm. bright green dollar signs painted on the side and then they're just they're just cloth bags but um and there's a there's a neat little moment where Clyde looks at this you know your your average Joe with a bunch of money on the counter in front of him and, and this guy looks terrified and so Clyde's pointing the gun at him he's like is that your money or the bank's and the guy's like it's my money he's like all right, keep it. That that's another one of the only moments that shows a a theme here, and and kind of the the reason why it would be even cooler if this happened <laughs> in real life. It did happen in real life, but it wasn't Clyde who did it. This is an actual story from John Dillinger, who did that at a bank he held up in 1933. How do you know that? I know a lot of things. <laughs> 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 so that was an anecdote that actually circled. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, circled around contemporaneously, huh. actually, with like while John Dillinger was still like a big shot. And that was so then after the robbery with all of them, they kind of settle down for a little bit in Joplin, Missouri, in this little apartment that they rent out and kind of try. It, it seems like they're kind of trying to lay low for a while. And you get like a couple moments of them, you know, just trying to hang out and have a have a good time together and like ordering food and all that. And then they they are completely blindsided by the police um, staking out this this hiding spot and, and they get in a shootout and, and have to flee mm-hmm. uh, and this caught them completely by surprise they weren't expecting mm-hmm. to, to be traced here this is accurate and this is actually I, I believe if I have my if I have my facts correct it was this incident in real life that kind of catapulted them into the public eye because when they had to flee this hideout in Joplin they left behind a roll of undeveloped film uh, which of course was was seized by the police and then developed and it was just this role of kind of goofy photos that they took of themselves for fun and if you've seen a picture of bonnie and clyde you've probably seen one of these pictures that they they left behind in joplin you know there's the there's the picture of um (laughs) <laughs> like Bonnie's holding like a, a big old rifle to Clyde's chest. <laughs> and, um, and then there's like the picture of them like standing next to their car, like hugging each other. And um, there's a very dramatic like kiss photo that, <laughs> you know, they're they're clearly mm-hmm. trying to reenact some Hollywood. I think one of the most famous pictures is, is Bonnie posing with like a, a cigar and a, and a pistol and trying to act all tough, which is funny because I think that photo has informed a lot of public perception about who she actually was when it's, it's just like a photo that, you know, she's. She's staged for fun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so they, they left behind these pictures of them and they're, you know, they're, they're very, obviously they're timeless. There's something captivating about them because it, it kind of shows their humanity in a very sweet way, honestly. Um, and so those photos actually ended up in a lot of newspapers and, and ended up garnering a lot of public attention and sympathy for, you know, these two star-crossed lovers just... Trying to rage against the machine. <laughs> this it's not addressed in the movie, but this was kind of the moment where they became celebrities of sorts. Mm-hmm. 
So they recreate a lot of these photos in the movie, of course. Uh, and I feel like that's probably a good time to mention another quick fast fact is that uh, Faye Dunaway's outfit department almost created like the fashion of the next five years mm. because all of Bonnie Parker's outfits in this movie, well, so some of them were kind of loosely based off of, of course, the real Bonnie Parker's outfits. Mm. But a lot of the stuff she wore, like the kind of long skirts and things like that, really became major fashion statements in the late 60s and early 70s so that's just kind of an interesting little trivia piece of note so they end up they end up fleeing and for plot purposes this is sort of used um just to dump on blanche a little bit more um, she yeah. is uh you know she's kind of like oh my gosh oh my gosh i can't believe that this is happening oh my gosh like see me <laughs> and just losing her mind and everyone's like uh shut up yeah. um she's she's just freaking out screaming and everyone's like be quiet and, and like <laughs> we just just move just move just move and you know at one point like the car's driving away and buck has to like reach out and pull blanche in yeah. and and then they go to this I think they they just go to to this field where they're they're camping out and they're splitting their money from like their most recent heist, and Blanche is like, "I want to cut. <laughs> I think I deserve a share of the profits." And Bonnie's like, "You're kidding, right?" <laughs> so she thinks that she deserves a share of the profits, and Bonnie's like. You have done nothing but make everyone's life more difficult. You did not help. <laughs> you did not earn this money. Uh, and and Clyde's just trying to smooth things over, and, and he does go give her some of the money because he's like, look, she's family. She's Buck's wife. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And Bonnie like is so angry at this, and she runs away. Um, and then Clyde runs after her. Yeah, and Clyde catches up with her, and then they end up, sleeping with each other like in the middle of this big old field yeah well the, the entire movie bonnie has kind of been coming on to clyde a little bit but he has been very hesitant with her before the first time i ever watched the movie a while ago before i had talked with you in depth about the history of bonnie and clyde mm -hmm. this was like a little bit confusing for me like what's the point of this but after learning about some of clyde's abuse in prison it makes a lot of sense so like yeah of course he's hesitant to begin a physical relationship with her but eventually they do at this point yeah and so that's that's seen as like a, a moment of, of sort of, of of character growth for clyde yeah yeah or, uh, based i would say for sure relational yeah. growth and then a short time later they're once again traveling along and they are chased by and end up kidnapping a texas ranger named frank hamer He's like, portrayed as very evil. Well, not not as evil, just like wimpy and gross. <laughs> well, here he is. When he comes back later, he's very he's very manipulative. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so he gets he gets captured by Bonnie and Clyde, and they're like a Texas Ranger. Like, well, I'll be <laughs> uh, a real life Texas Ranger, um, and they're they're just ridiculing him because they've got him in this absolutely like powerless position and then they start posing for photographs with him mm -hmm. and like at one point like bonnie kisses him to humiliate him he spits in her face clyde's like why i oughta and then he like tries to um, <laughs> charlie brown <laughs> that's not that's good grief who says why i oughta 
like 50s schoolboys. No, but that's in that's in Peanuts. Someone says that. Oh, I ought to slug you. Yeah, there you go. That's Lucy. <laughs> I've seen the Great Pumpkin so many times. <laughs> <laughs> But so so Clyde like freaks out not because Bonnie kissed this guy but because this guy disrespected Bonnie <laughs> like kissing him <laughs> and Clyde like tries to tries to drown him in this like lake that they're they're standing by and Buck stops him but then they they end up like handcuffing this guy with his own handcuffs and then sending him out onto the lake just to fend for himself and then I think it's right after that that they're moving along again and they. I think they realize that they need a new car, and this this happened was you know just every once in a while they would steal another car so that they wouldn't mm. be traced as easily. And there's this there's this guy named Eugene, <laughs> and this girl named Velma, and Eugene is over at Velma's house, and they're canoodling, and um, but you know <laughs> Velma has her car there, and Eugene doesn't live there, so he also has his car there, and so like the Barrow Gang, it's Buck, Blanche, C.W., Bonnie, and Clyde. They all drive up, like hop out get in Eugene's car and drive away <laughs> and Eugene's like wait um, and it's kind of funny because because I think before Eugene had like been telling like Velma about like all his like heroic like adventures yeah. and like he's like this big strong tough guy and Velma's like well and she's like well go after him like go get your car back Eugene and Eugene's like <laughs> um, and he's like very clearly like scared out of his mind but he's like I gotta go be strong guy um, Eugene is played by Gene Wilder um, oh, which is fascinating that this movie was the well this is Gene Wilder's film debut and it, so it sent two very famous Hollywood genes into stardom yeah Gene Wilder of course he played Willy Wonka mm -hmm. he was in Young Frankenstein all these great movies and this is his first ever role yeah and so they Eugene and Velma get in Velma's car and start driving after him and then Buck uh sorry Clyde and Bonnie notice this and they're like well, let's go visit with them. And so they turn the car around <laughs> and they they drive up um, and stop next to, to Eugene and Velma. And Eugene's like, like shaking in his boots, basically. Um, but the, then they're like, hey, get in. <laughs> and so they they like get Eugene and Velma in the car and then they just go off driving for a while. And this is this is something that they did was they would just kidnap people. Um, oftentimes people that they had just robbed um, and then they would just like drive off with them and let them out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. They did sometimes give them money to get home though, which was nice. How kind of them. How kind. Um, this is a really interesting scene though. It is. And, and so they're driving around with Eugene and Velma and they they honestly just kind of hit it off and they're having a great time. You, you kind of get the sense that like this is the first time they've talked to somebody, to, to people that aren't in their immediate group in like a long mm -hmm. time and and everyone seems to be having a good time and obviously the e Eugene and Velma are a little <laughs> scared still but um they're having a good time they're they're chatting and laughing and then they ask Eugene what he does for a living and he's an undertaker and mm. this freaks Bonnie out because I think this is in the movie. This is played as the single moment where she kind of it kind of hits her like the consequences of what we're of what they're doing. And, and you know, as we've discussed in in real life, I think that was that was a much more present reality. But yeah, you, you kind of it's not explicitly stated, but she has a moment where she realizes that this is 
what's coming for them eventually. It's it's really brilliant too because it also works on the thematic level. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about with the farmer shooting up the farmhouse, um, like the bank sign of the farmhouse. It's like we're in the depression. Uh, people are struggling to make money and they meet this rich young dude uh, with his fancy car and his fancy house. And uh, what's he profiting off of? Death. 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 And now, like that's that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. That's so cool. Th- this is this is something that actually happened. And they kidnapped a young couple. He was an undertaker. The difference is in Bonnie's reaction. Like in, in real life, she she heard this and she's like, ha, that's great. Maybe you'll work on me someday. And that guy did embalm her. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's crazy. What? Which is kind of wild. Um so yeah, I'm I, I honestly, I don't know which reaction I like better. They're both good and they're both good in different ways. Yeah, I feel like like the real life one is like very true to Bonnie's character, like of course, as mm-hmm. a like, real person, but it just works so well thematically in this yeah. movie to be like, like this movie, I feel like this movie is much more about the depression than the real Bonnie and Clyde were. Mm-hmm. And so after this, I think it, it kind of shakes Bonnie up a little bit. And she and Clyde start talking about, like, marriage. He kind of proposes to her, I, I think. He's just kinda, like, hey, yeah. won't get married. Um, they don't. They're romantic. Yeah, they don't get married. But um, And Bonnie says that she wants to, that she misses her mom and she wants to go visit her mother. And so they do. And there's this really odd scene yeah. with, like, everyone in the Barrow Gang and then what is assumed to be a lot of Bonnie's extended family. And they all just meet up in this kind of random abandoned location and spend an afternoon together. And this is just sort of a montage scene and you don't hear like a lot of dialogue. It's just like clips of people talking and interacting, but there, there's also like a lot of tension to it. It feels like this like weird dream. Yeah. While you're watching it, it's like, you kind of just like, it feels kind of woozy, like, where, what is time? What mm-hmm. is this? What's happening? Yeah. And the reason for that is because they shot the entire thing through a double-pane glass window. Oh, wow. Uh, on purpose that. to create this, like, feeling of, like, dissonance and nostalgia. Like, wow. Bonnie comes home, but, like, she is forever separated from, like, this yeah. life of innocence by behind, like, this window that she has now created for herself. That's really interesting. Pretty cool. Um, and there is a, a discussion towards the end where Bonnie's mother, the person that Bonnie wanted to come back and visit this whole time is very stoic mm-hmm. and, and very reserved. And at one point Clyde tries having like a, an awkward conversation with her and he's like, you know, like Bonnie talks about you all the time. And like, she keeps saying that she wants to to settle down and like someday she wants to live just like a few miles from her mama. And the mother's like, you try to do that and I'll kill you. (laughs) Um, Not in those words, but that's pretty much what she says. This also had elements of truth in it. One of the interesting things about the Barrow Gang was their devotion to maintaining relationships with their family. And that's actually one of the things that got them caught. Uh, it was Hamer who noticed that they moved in regular and predictable patterns because they kept coming back to s- visit family members of, of yeah. different people in the gang. Amateur move. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a little bit heart-wrenching, you know? <laughs> As an outlaw myself, I've never visited oh my, my family. Gosh. <laughs> but understandably, Bonnie's mother really hated the life that yeah. her daughter ended up choosing for herself and in fact um 
Bonnie and Clyde explicitly like requested and it was it was they made it very clear that they wanted to be buried next to each other and Bonnie's mother refused. So they're buried separately. And um, Mrs. Parker said something along the lines of, you know, he took her away from me long enough in life. I'm not going to let him have her in death as well. Yeah. In real life, probably the right move. Yeah. Because Clyde was much more of a uh, terrible person. They well, also they also like made him really attractive in the movie and like he was not. Yeah, well, you got to sell tickets somehow. Yeah, I guess. Um, and then there's another. He just had big ears. He had really big ears. He looked like Despero. <laughs> All right, don't be mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then after that, I think there's the other like big big ambush where they're camped out somewhere. They get ambushed, and Buck gets shot really really badly. And and there's just like a bunch of confusion and CW and Bonnie and Clyde are all able to get away. And they're I think they're trying to like bring Buck along with them and Blanche gets like a shard of, of glass in her eye. And so she's blinded, but she's also like hysterical because she knows that Buck is, is hurt really badly. And they're they're unable to get Buck into the car with them. And so they they just leave and, and they have to abandon him. It's a super bloody sequence too, yeah. which, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, but it was very like new for the time. Another mm -hmm. aspect of this movie that kind of like broke new ground, I suppose, mm -hmm. just like no one had ever seen that much blood on screen before. And it was, it's very realistic. It's very disturbing. Yeah. And then you do get this like just heartbreaking photograph of Blanche um, where if you, if you Google the name Blanche Barrow, you're almost certain to see this photograph of her wearing like, like a, a pair of tight pants and like some dark glasses. And she's like, just, yeah, hysterical would be a good word. Hysterically like flinching away from the camera. Um, she's flinching away. She's like looking into the camera and, and like just trying to, 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 like shield herself from it and it's because she had just been blinded and she thought that the camera was someone shooting at her she thought she was like about to be to be killed in this moment and so she gets captured in this moment because she refuses to leave buck's body that's just a like a morbidly fascinating photograph to me because there is just so much emotion on on that woman's face and it's like yeah it's heartbreaking and so this is this is the moment where they get separated and blanche is now in prison and she encounters hamer mm -hmm. frank hamer uh who now has a personal vendetta against the barrow gang and so he tricks her into revealing the name of C.W. Moss, who to this point was an unidentified accomplice. Mm -hmm. And so now that they know C.W. Moss's name, they have a little bit of information to go off of because Bonnie and Clyde, I, I can't remember if this happened in the movie, but in, in real life, Bonnie also got very badly injured in this. It does happen. Both Bonnie and Clyde get shot. Right. Life. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're just in in bad shape, and so they go and are taken in by CW's father for a while. Malcolm, I think so. Yeah, they're on their while they're on their way to CW father's house. 
there's that interesting moment where like they're almost dying in the car. CW is driving them. They pull up to this homeless camp, and the all the people like CW goes to get water for uh, Bonnie and Clyde because they're thirsty, and they're like bleeding out in the back of the car. And he asks the the homeless people there if they have any water, and they're like a little skeptical at first, and then they go and they see Bonnie and Clyde, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, that's Bonnie and Clyde!" And they're like, "Give them everything we got to help them, like like help them live." It's like like they bandage them up and give them water, and basically sustain them enough to get to CW's dad's and house. And the, while they're there, Malcolm is is being very hospitable to them, and you can almost see like when he turns away, like it's that like sly little smile. But yeah, he's being very hospitable. Bonnie and Clyde don't suspect a darn thing. But Malcolm like pulls CW aside and he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, and, you know, things like your your mother would be so disappointed in you. He's very hung up on this tattoo that CW got after Bonnie, like, oh, like right. peer pressured him that. into it. <laughs> and he's like, what have they done to you? Did we get like a full body chest tattoo? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, which, I mean, to be fair, is... Anybody. Almost never a good idea for anybody. Yeah. <laughs> but he goes and and he meets up. I can't remember who approaches who, but he meets up with Frank Hamer and basically agrees to help in the quote unquote capture of Bonnie and Clyde in exchange for leniency when his son gets tried. Which is what happened in real life, right? But not with CW. With, with Henry Methvin. Henry Methvin, yeah. yeah. And so basically CW, Bonnie and Clyde, yeah, CW and Bonnie and Clyde all go into town and Malcolm's like, CW, don't come home with them. Like, do not get in the car, CW. Um, stay in town, CW. <laughs> um, <laughs> I will pick you up, CW. <laughs> and it's, it's not made explicitly clear what CW knows, but he knows something's about to happen. So when they, they go to town, they're shopping around for a bit. And well, he kind then, of follows his dad's orders as blindly as he follows Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Like, he seems like he's just kind of passing through life. Bonnie and Clyde show up there like, hey, you want to rob banks? He's like, sure. And then his dad's like, stop. And he's like, okay. He, he always just seems to be in pursuit of approval from yeah. someone. But so then it's time to leave the store and Bonnie and Clyde are like, CW and he like hides out and and so they they just leave without him which is kind of interesting yeah. but he he hides and he stays behind and then as they're driving back to Malcolm Moss's house Malcolm sets up his car <laughs> on the side of the road and fakes a flat tire and of course they see this they recognize the car um they park the car Clyde gets out of it to to help and then I think like something like a, a bird like flies out of a bush and, and well, there's a truck coming down the road the other way oh really yeah there's like a while Clyde is walking towards Malcolm's Malcolm's car uh he like kind of spots this truck coming in the distance down the road mm. um and it's, it's this like kind of montage of sound where like Clyde sees it and then it cuts to Malcolm who turns around and sees it and then Clyde turns to the bushes and he's like a rustle in the bush. Uh, and then Malcolm dives to the ground. Yeah, he he just like hits the ground. And then there's a very like hit you over the head moment where like Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie's still in the car, Clyde out in the road, just like turn and, and like stare at each other. Yeah, it's an extreme close up on both of their eyes. Yeah, and look like directly at each other. And then they get 
Literally shot and killed. Um, it shows it all too. It's just like flat it's out. a very explicit scene. Yeah, and it's it's very drawn out. Yeah. Um, Which I mean, it was in real life. There, there's footage of this moment. There is like, like video footage. There's video footage. What? Of not, not of them getting killed, but of oh, like of a car? some guy like walking around the car, and you can you can see them inside like afterwards. Mm. Um, and apparently, I'm not sure how word got out, but like kind of like a mob assembled very quickly of like souvenir hunters. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, some guy tried to like cut off Clyde's ear, and like the the policeman was like, nope. <laughs> but it was too big nope. and he wasn't able to do it. Hey. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, one of my life's goals is to see the Bonnie and Clyde death car. It used to be in Vegas, but now it's not. It is still in Nevada, though. It's at some other we like, casino. We should go. Podcast trip. Podcast trip. Yeah, I... Yeah, so the, the car, the car that they were in with, like, all the bolt holes, it's like a... It's a tourist attraction. This podcast is actually being recorded inside the Bonnie and Clyde car. <laughs> and Clyde's shirt too. Yeah, it's all I mean, torn up. one of the coolest things about the Bonnie and Clyde story, and let, well, actually, let's let's wrap up the summary because we're at the end of the movie. Yeah, it, and then 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 the all the policemen come out and they're like, huh, <laughs> and they just stare, and then black. Yeah, um, and that's how the movie ends. And yeah, like one of the coolest parts about the Bonnie and Clyde story is it's like not that old, and there there is like a disconnect in some. I suppose old movies or period piece movies, like if you watch like a early 1800s thing where it just like doesn't feel too real. Um, but like the knowledge that you can go see Clyde's shirt with all the bullet holes in it, it makes it feel so real. And you can like, if you, if you are interested and have the stomach for it, like you can watch the video footage with their dead bodies sitting there. Yeah. And like, that's, that's insane to me. Like that is real and that exists. Yeah. At least Bonnie's funeral was so heavily attended, her family could barely get to the gravesite because wow. there were so many people there. Um, I, I actually just read before we started recording, there was a, a Dallas Newsboys like union or, or like club and they actually sent just a, a crap ton of flowers to Bonnie's funeral as a thank you for how many papers they sold <laughs> <laughs> when, when they when they died. Um yeah, and so that's that's how it ends. I, I think whether or not it's historically accurate, I think one thing that you can really chalk up to this movie is without this movie, you have no culturally relevant Bonnie and Clyde today. Bonnie and Clyde, the Broadway musical. You don't, though, because this is the movie that made Bonnie and Clyde what we know of them and like without the success of this movie maybe they still would have made bonnie and clyde the broadway musical <laughs> without this movie like ted hinton probably would have written his book and the musical probably wouldn't have been made yeah. and like i mean you got a lot to thank this movie for in terms of popularizing the outlaw genre yeah um, yeah it did really because they were they were celebrities of their own time mm -hmm. but this movie did really cement them in you know, kind of that timeless pop culture canon. And there is something like a little poetic about like this movie made Bonnie Parker a star. Mm -hmm. And that's what she always wanted in life. And like she got it. That's a really good point. And I was really, I was really excited to see this movie because I knew that it was, you know, sort of responsible for most of what 
your average layperson would probably <laughs> think they know about Bonnie and Clyde. I mean, it, it definitely has its fingerprints in a lot of different movies today, and it's responsible for bringing in European filmmaking techniques and like different types of storytelling into um, movie making today. So, I mean, it's definitely got a lot of value. And I mean, if you're a fan of the old West, like American West atmosphere, um, Wild West slash like, I guess just Texas. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, like this is this is definitely sort of like an atmospheric immersive movie to watch yeah. in that regard. It's a lot of it's very beautiful and I mean the film is like like uh what is it? It feels just very dusty and very and bland, rich, yeah. Which is well you said rich, I said bland. I think but I think both are true. Yeah, no, I mean like like what I like the film itself, not the movie, but like the actual like film. Oh yeah. Uh, like it, it has such a like a like the color and everything. It feels so true to its place. It's a it's a good watch and it's an important watch in terms of the history of movie making. So I would recommend it. And that's Bonnie and Clyde. If you would like to submit a formal complaint <laughs> for, <laughs> I I do apologize for just how annoying I know I was during this episode. I'm like, well, actually, uh, <laughs> uh, you can send that email to offthewatchlist at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Do not ask for me for more Bonnie and Clyde facts because you will get them. You should do it. Also um, Titanic facts. Also Titanic. Also Donner Party facts. Yeah, yeah, that works too. <laughs> you can also follow us on Instagram. We will, where we will put that very famous photo of Blanche Barrow. Uh, that's off at off the watch list pod on Instagram. Yep. Uh, and I believe that's it. That should be it. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. 